0: Welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anat Alone Peck, Assistant Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve School of Law. We will discuss her article, Alternative Venture Capital The New Unicorn Investors, which will be published in the Tennessee Law Review. So, welcome back to the show, Anat.
1: Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure, really. Thank you for having me. No, pleasure's all mine.
0: Um, so I was wondering, uh, if we could start by you just talking a little bit about how you became interested in in the subject of of unicorn companies, and uh, and maybe you could say something about your. Uh, I understand you have a new nickname.
1: Yep, Unicorn Lady. So, um, so as you know, I'm obsessed about unicorn companies. Uh, it's nice because. Just two days ago, I read in the financial press that we have uh, 15 new unicorns um, in the uh, e-commerce retail industry, right, with everything that's going on. So the, the good thing is it keeps me busy. I know we're going to continue to see this rise in unicorns in the near future. And uh, with regards to this project, I really started it about two years ago. Uh, As you might know, uh, at the time, I was a fellow at NYU, and I get this email from uh, my mentor, Ed Rock, and he says, Anat, there's an amazing roundtable at Columbia. Uh, The Milstein Center is hosting it, and they're going to discuss private ownership at a public crossroad, studying the rapidly evolving world of uh, corporate ownership. And because of your work on Unicorn firms, I think you should uh, definitely attend. And honestly, the rest is history. I attended the Roundtable, and I love it. Uh, it was amazing. And I was surprised at one thing is that at first I thought we were going to be mostly, you know, academics. And then I saw a lot of people from the industry. So uh, there were uh, some of the largest um, fund um you know, institutional investor funds and their representatives, and also uh, representatives of uh, private equity funds. And um, you know, when when you see also industry, there's this saying in Hebrew. You know, kabdeo and khashideo, respect them but suspect them. Right, and and one that they were trying to um, convey is that it's really unfair that uh, retail investors are not able to participate in private markets. And, and just let me tell you just a little bit about what's going on, okay, how equity ownership is changing in the United States. So really the number of IPOs in the last two decades have fallen very short of the number of public uh, market exits, There's a 33% decline in the number of public companies. Let me just illustrate. In 1995, we had about 9,000 public companies. Today, we have less than 6,000. And what's happening is that that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have the the growth of these emerging, fast-growing businesses that I call unicorns. And they're able to attract large amounts of investment capital. And traditionally, they were able to do that from angel investors, uh, uh, private family offices, venture capital firms. But today, and that's what I I am researching, and that's what I'm um, doing in the paper, I'm showing that there's new players uh, in the market, okay? And... um, so really what's happening is that we have this rise of what I call alternative venture capital, right? We have these new types of investors that are uh playing in these markets, in these private markets, and they are, you know, non-traditional, deep pocketed. For example, we have soft bank, mutual funds, hedge funds, corporate venture capitalists, private equity and, and sovereign wealth funds.
0: So, how is the shift to unicorn companies and venture capital changing the regulatory landscape as opposed to sort of the world that was kind of predominated by public companies?
1: That's a great, that's a great question. So, what, what I've been noticing is that we have on the one hand this rise, right, in this new deep pocketed, I call them AVC, right, alternative venture capital investors. And what they're doing, is they are re-engineering. They are the competitive landscape of unicorn funding. And what do I mean by that? So in the past, right, with with startup firms, let's let's for a second, although a unicorn is a large firm, right, it's worth over a billion dollars, but many still regard it as a startup, right? So in the past, startup firms had a hard time, uh, initially at least, raising capital, right? They would go to investors and, you know, the investors would... Tell them what are the terms to the deal. Today, we have so many uh, investors that are investing in these unicorns. And by the way, let me just state that unicorns are usually venture capital uh, sponsored firms, meaning venture capitalists have already invested in these firms. We are talking about later rounds of investments, okay? So in the it's companies that have already raised large amounts of investments from sophisticated players. So, what's happening today is instead of unicorn firms competing right for a limited pool of funding and begging investors to invest, they're able to attract so much money, right? Almost an, a limitless pool of funds that what's happening is now the investors are competing for a chance to invest in these firms, okay? So the tables have turned. So now you have these firms that and founders control the firms who are able to negotiate for founder-friendly terms. They get to say, okay, this is what I want to the investors, okay? And the investors are competing with each other to invest in the firms.
0: Well, so in your paper, you're focused primarily on sort of how retail investors fit into this mix. And my sense is that the kind of investment landscape has changed in the sense that the point at which retail investors would have been able to kind of buy into uh, firms, uh, IPOs and whatnot, sort of subject to a sort of broad regulatory scheme has has shifted and that private money predominates for a longer period of time in the life cycle of firm. Is, is that a fair assessment of sort of the broad mind run of the landscape?
1: So, so really the, the question that I am um... – dealing with is that, you know, our securities laws, right, have been changing. Some will say there's been uh, de- deregulation. And what what's happening, and I have to say, I'm going to describe two things, what happened uh, with the current administration. And also, there are some changes that have some say even started in the 80s, others say with the uh, previous administration with the JOBS Act. And that is, that what we're doing is we we are deregulating our securities laws, allowing private companies to stay private longer and uh, raise more capital uh, from from these uh, players. And uh, with regards to this current administration, there there are some critics that argue that currently the SEC, under the direction of Chairman uh, Clayton, that they're continuing to ease these rules on capital raising, which allow these firms to stay, um, you know, private longer, and and this trend is not new, as I said, right? But basically, um, what it does is that these changes, I think, can hurt. Uh, Retail investors, non-accredited investors, and their ability to make informed investment decisions. Because one of the questions that we discussed um, in that roundtable and that I'm addressing really in the paper is that should regulators encourage retail investors to invest in these private markets? These private markets were previously limited only to sophisticated, wealthy players such as accredited individuals and institutions. And now there's this push. That's what I told you that employers were telling us. Oh, it's unfair that retail investors can't invest in the new Uber. Okay. It's unfair that if you don't make a certain amount of money that you should be left out and not be able to participate in what's going on. So, Um, So the argument is that, again, it's unfair to only allow institutional investors and high net worth individuals to access private markets and benefit from them. And I have to say that there is very powerful advocacy groups and academics that are calling for this change. And and, uh, a few uh, weeks, actually, after that roundtable, that white paper was out, you know, pushing for these changes and they're calling – for changes, as I said, they even managed and they convinced our regulators to act. OK, and now, again, supposedly their primary purpose is to democratize and equalitize the access to our private markets. But to me, the one thing I know, right, as a law professor, as somebody who worked in New York, Tel Aviv, worked with companies in Silicon Valley, knows Washington very well is this we have this rule of thumb right with regards to proposed rules or laws or even model bills right that they always have these deceptive titles and descriptions in order to disguise the the true intent right so they can have great promises these rules to protect the public but in reality they will only serve to advance the corporate bottom line right and and that's what i was afraid that is going on here because Yeah, it's true. Maybe, okay, maybe retail investors want a piece of the action, right, of private markets. They want to be able to invest. But what about thinking of who else is behind it and pushing and lobbying for these things? Is it possible that we have large investment firms, for example, private equity funds that are also interested in getting access to the individual investor market, right? And I I just want to say one more thing, and that is, private investment funds have been interested in tapping the individual investor markets for quite some time now, and they've hired lobbyists to advocate for them in Washington. Okay. So to me, it was important to also show that piece uh, of the puzzle of of what's going on.
0: Well, so so my understanding is that the kind of perceived unfairness comes from the fact that there's sort of a lot of money to be made, and retail investors don't currently have access to it. And it sounds like companies want access to retail investors. I guess the question I can't help asking is why don't they just do an IPO and go public then if they want access to retail investors? And how would or how does retail investors investing in kind of private companies differ from what would happen when those same investors are investing in a public company?
1: That's a great question. Okay. So those are a few, a great question. And I'll say um, a few things first, let's separate between our public markets and our private markets, right? What we've achieved in the United States, something that's really, and, and I have to say other you know mm-hmm. countries are very jealous is that we have you know, uh, robust, um, credible public markets. Right? If you trade on a public market, you know that you can find the disclosure of information on that stock. Some analysts gonna uh, tell you what's going on, whether you read it or not, or how you decide to invest. The point is, there's information, right? As an investor, you have information. You can make an informed decision. On the other hand, we have these private markets. The advantage for, and let me say a few things. I'll talk about the, the firms, these unicorns, and I'll also talk about the players, these new players that are trying to open up access, okay? So I'll start with the unicorn firm. Why would a unicorn firm want to continue to stay private? Well, they have several reasons. One, they don't have to disclose information, right? That could be information on, competitive advantage information could be ip it could be about anything maybe litigation think about a famous company of terranos have you heard about terranos right terranos was able to raise so much money from by the way a credit i looked to invested in them okay they were accredited investors very wealthy the difference is they were able to do what to afford to lose that money, at least according to our securities laws, right? It could be unfair that we say, oh, if you have a certain amount of capital that you should be able to, um, you know, invest. But the point is that the securities laws are meant to do two things. And that is one, to protect investors and two, to facilitate capital formation. Now, uh I'll also talk quickly if you'd like about what's happening with regards to changes that we're observing, right? And that is, so this past August, for example, the SEC amended the definition of a creative investor and it expanded the definition of qualified institutional buyers in the securities act of uh, 1933. And these definitions, basically what they do is they determine which individuals and institutions are able to participate in our private capital markets. Now, So again, what they're doing is they are broadening. It's part of this effort to broaden the exposure of uh, and allow more people to participate in our um, private markets. And uh, another, uh, two more changes that happened, and that's the uh, Department of Labor, right? Uh, They made uh, one of the proposals. Remember I told you that there was this white paper that very powerful uh, industry groups and academics are pushing right to allow retail investors to have access to these firms, despite all this risk, right? And and we know about that in the a story, and and that is um, what happened is the Department of Labor announced, you know, in an information letter that uh, the provisions on uh, fiduciary responsibility in the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, uh, nineteen seventy four. It's called ERISA to allow fiduciaries of 401k plans to include um, diverse diversified investment options with uh, private equity exposure if certain requirements are met. and Let me simplify it. Let me um, unpack that. What it really means is that 401k plans and individual retirement account fiduciaries uh, now will have this opportunity to offer investment in private equity funds. Whether they're going to p- choose to do that or not, That's uh, up to them. But what it means is that in the past, plan fiduciaries didn't include such options because with exposure to private equity, because they were afraid about potential lawsuits, liability, you know, exposure to liability because of a breach of fiduciary duty under ERISA. So today what's happening is now we've opened it up. We're we're allowing them to have this exposure to uh, private equity. And um, and you know it, it's 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 troubling, and I'm not the only one. Okay, I'm not the only one writing about this. Let me give you a, like a great quote from a critic, right? Well, that uh, saying that this development would not benefit retail investors, but might rather worsen wealth inequality by sucking a huge pile of money out of the pockets of workers that are saving for retirement. So again. You really have to, I think, with any kind of, um, you know, proposals for changes, what we should really look at is who's advocating for those proposals? What's behind it? What's going to be the bottom line for these retail investors? Because the likelihood that a retail investor will be able to, let's say, invest in a successful company like the next Uber, very slim. Uh, on the other hand, there's a ton of fraud in private markets. What we want, and I think we want our securities laws to do is to protect those investors, right? We want to protect them from fraud. And Theranos is a great example of what happened. And look at how much money she was able to raise. I mean, that's, you know, that should be, um, you know, um, a story that should at least convince some people that it, that it might be too risky or too complex or hard for investors to evaluate private companies.
0: Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit more specifically about how venture capitalists are differently situated from retail investors and the people representing them in relation to these kinds of private market investments.
1: So so that's great. Uh, so again, so one of the proposals was, let's do this. If we don't want to, or if we don't want to allow uh, these you know, non-sophisticated investors to invest directly in uh, private markets. And by the way, let me just say one more thing. I have one more caveat, and that is already in our uh, securities laws before they were changed recently, by the way, unicorns can raise some capital, right, under 506 from non accredited investors if they wanted to. It's under limitations, but they were able to do that. By the way, historically, they chose not to because they don't want to deal with that headache of all the disclosure of the information and all the compliance that they have to go through here. Okay. So what's really happening is that I think, and that's the other uh, aspect of this is that we have these private equity funds that want to get access to the retail investor market. And, and, and I told you there were three ways that were uh, proposed of how to Offer opportunities for uh, non accredited investors to participate in the market. And they said that one of them should be through investments in private equity. What do I mean by that? That the private equity funds will be doing the monitoring for um, the non accredited investors, right? So, uh, and basically, um, what we would do is we would Rely on them to do that. Well, there are problems with that as well, right? Why are there problems with that? Well, let's look at their, um, the way they've been acting in the past. And even the SEC, the SEC itself even issued a risk alert letter. Okay. Um, and they identified a few things, and they highlighted a few problems with regards to uh, actions that involve private fund advisors, such as private equity funds and hedge funds. And uh, they included a lack of disclosure of potential conflicts of interest, excessive fees that may be charged, a lack of policy and procedure regarding codes of ethics or insider trading. So if we already know we have all these potential problems. And by the way, a lot of uh, critics have focused on, uh, for example, excessive fees uh, that private equity funds can uh, charge. Who's, does, who's really going to protect, again, the uh, non-accredited investors? Who's going to do the monitoring for them? And that's why I felt that this paper was important to show. That, you know, in these private markets, especially when we're talking about unicorn firms and the players that invest in them, we're talking about sophisticated players. They have their own incentives, right? They're going to bargain for information. They're, they're going to get the company to disclose whatever information to them, okay? But who's going to do that for? The retail investors, right? I think it's very unlikely the retail investors are going to be able to bargain for information or get information to make an informed decision. So um, that's what I think is very also important about this paper.
0: Well, so I totally understand why we would be concerned about retail investors sort of directly investing in private uh, private companies and in private markets, uh, because it's pretty clear that their ability to play in that game effectively is pretty limited. But a lot of people do their investments through, as you say, like, you know, through 401k plans, through mutual funds, whatever. I mean, some of those are really big and pretty powerful. Are there reasons to think that the people running those mutual funds and so on might be still differently situated than venture capitalists in relation to their ability to invest effectively and sort of properly weigh the risks of these kinds of private investments?
1: So that's another great, great question. So as I said, in the paper, I go over the different investors that are currently investing. For example, one of them is mutual funds, right? And there's been several papers uh, of um, criticizing this current trend, okay, of mutual funds investing in uh, these private markets. And why? I'll give you a few reasons. But first, just to say legally, they're allowed to do that. Okay, They're allowed to invest up to 15% of their portfolios in these types of investments. They have traditionally in the past invested in uh, uh, private equities, different, okay, but, but uh, in private vehicles. And uh, when I spoke to several, and I did spoke to several of the largest um, advisors of these uh, mutual funds, because I was very curious, I told them, well, you know, mutual funds are a different beast, right? You care about redemption. You care about aggressive redemption because you need to be able to uh, offer that to your investors. How are you monitoring your investments in unicorn firms, right? And they say, well, yes, we do care about investments. And what we do is um, we ask for aggressive redemption on the one hand and um we do our monitoring by co-investing with others such as uh, hedge funds, for example. And then I was thinking to myself, hedge funds? you want hedge funds to do the monitoring for you? Well, I took a look at those incentives and hedge funds have their own incentives. And by the way, if you look at history of their uh, performance when they invested in private markets, that wasn't that great either. So... Really, there are several issues here, and with regards to mutual funds, there are quite a few that that have been writing about this, like Josh Lerner at Harvard um, and others that have been discussing the fact that we have these new players in these markets, and the fact that their um, investment—they're investing, but are they really monitoring the management of unicorns? Right? Are they really able to monitor what's happening in these firms? And to me, there's even more than that. Um, just in general, if we see these new alternative investors, um, and and let's take another example of WeWork, right? You will find that some of these alternative investors they ask for different kind of provisions than traditional venture capital. That's why I keep comparing them to venture capital investors in the paper. So. Uh, with WeWork, it was actually Professor Coffey that immediately pointed out to the fact that, oh, look at SoftBank. Um, SoftBank asks for these uh, rights after the IPO, these Yay! anti-delusion rights. And what they do, basically, is that if, as I told you, these uh, investors invest in late stages, usually before any type of IPO, and these provisions, what they do is they protect you. If the valuation post IPO is lower, then, um, you are protected from dilution. You're, you're going to get uh, more stock in the company. And that's a big deal, right? And people had to dig through these filings to find that out, but it's only because we work decided, um, to even go and, 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 try to do an IPO which didn't they didn't at the end right because of all this criticism about their corporate governance practices right and so but what it shows you it's not just we work and uh there's other players as well that again are going to negotiate for things like anti-delusion like aggressive redemption in return for In exchange, I'm sorry, in exchange for other things, and that is monitoring what management is doing, okay, which is going to hurt investors.
0: Yeah, I mean, my sense is that even though some of the fiduciaries representing individual retail investors might be kind of in the aggregate really powerful, it sounds like maybe they're powerful in different ways than venture capitalists are that might make it harder for them to invest effectively in the markets you're describing?
1: Well, to me, it's, they have their own incentives, right? So what we need, what, that's what the paper does really well. And that is tell you who are these different actors that are investing? How are their investment strategies different, right? They might have financial incentives. And I'm also describing the other players. They might have strategic investments. They want to have exposure to, the information, right? Uh, Apple, Google, all these tech companies that are now, by the way, under a lot of fire over antitrust allegations, they started their own corporate venture capital funds to invest in in, in, in you know in startups. Okay, so you see them investing. They have other non-financial strategic uh, incentives. We have sovereign wealth funds who have changed the way they're investing in these uh, markets. Right? They change it from uh, some from uh, passive investments to active investments, so there's a lot that's going on that I feel that regulators, policymakers are not aware of, and uh, and before they make policy decisions that are going to affect investor protection and capital formation, I think it's important to take a look at some of these developments, and 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 that's what the article does really well. It, it Outline some of these new developments that I don't believe are discussed in the literature yet. So it's kind of novel in that respect.
0: Well, so Anat, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think regulators ought to do in relation to these proposed changes or kind of impending changes and uh, and whether there are particular issues or problems that you think they should keep in mind when thinking about what the regulatory landscape should look like in the future.
1: Sure. Thank you. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on investor protection and access to private markets. And I think that our securities laws, again, are designed to protect investors, Okay. And this is why we have these rules and restrictions um, that regulate investments in private markets. And um, what I would want um, our policymakers or r- regulators to do is I want them to really consider uh these risks that I'm outlining in in my paper, right? And what I want them to do is I want them to think very hard before they design a policy that allows non-accredited investors to invest in private firms. I want them to consider the risks that are associated with these investments. And I want them to think about the cost-benefit analysis of such changes to our current system. And again, The the private markets are plugged with high risk, with information asymmetry, with agency costs, okay? So I really think that if we're going to change our securities laws, it's going to be problematic for the following reasons, okay? And I'm going to ask them to think about the following questions, okay? First, with regards to private equity it's common knowledge that private equity funds hold assets that are very hard to value. Okay. Now with unicorns and also with, you know, uh, private assets, valuations can be disputed, right? We have a great studies by Gordon and by Lerner and others that are, um, that show that valuations can be disputed. And sometimes unicorns, for example, are overvalued. Okay. So I think it's important to make sure that private equity fund managers will not have an incentive to distort such reported valuations, especially if they need to use reports in order to make decisions on commitments for subsequent funds. okay? So some of the hard questions that I think uh, are, you know, policymakers should consider are, for example, what if underperforming private equity fund managers decide to inflate their reported returns during times when fundraising takes place? Could non-accredited investors see through these manipulations? And, and, and there's a few more, right, uh, issues. Um, now, with regards to the liquidity concerns, I also wanted to say something about that. Now. Uh, unicorn insurance are not liquid, okay? They're not liquid, which means that many unicorns put restrictions on secondary trading, okay? So, uh, also, if you allow people to invest in these, you have to take into account that you need more robust secondary markets, okay? So, you need improvement in that as well. Now... um you know there are also suggestions for example to use public closed-end funds that that they will invest in private equity funds um and i think there's more that we need to have more research on this option okay because on the one hand retail investors can perhaps benefit from having sophisticated players that can do the monitoring for them and that can negotiate the contractual terms with the private equity funds. However, however, there are still many unanswered questions that I raise in the paper that I think need to be answered. The big one is fee structures, okay? I want to make sure that if we allow something like this, that there's a disclosure of fees and there's information, about uninvested capital, okay? I also think that there's a need for more research on the asymmetric information of these funds and for best practices in order to answer these questions. For example, should the SEC mandate a waiver of management fees on uninvested capital by closing funds? Should the SEC put restrictions or limits on underlying private equity fund management Again, I didn't discuss all these things in the paper. It was one paper. It was already so long and there's so much to do, right? But I, I really feel that there is a risk that's associated with investing in unicorn firms. And more than that, I also think that, you know, what we're seeing, again, is a decline in our public markets, And by allowing, you, you know, these firms to stay private longer. And allowing more parties to have exposure to these firms, aren't we just exacerbating the problem, right? What I think our regulators and, and policymakers, what they should do is instead focus on what can make companies go public. Don't give them more incentives to stay private, okay? We want them to disclose information. We want to have robust public markets. We want... Of course, I want people to be able to invest in them, but I want them to be protected and I want them to have a disclosure of information, okay? So again, we have all these things, all these tensions, and I'm not sure that we need this, by the way, for uh, capital formation, okay? Why do they need more capital? I'm already showing you in this paper with regard, again, this is with regards to unicorns. They're able to raise so much capital That investors are competing over who's going to invest, and that causes corporate governance issues and problems in these firms, right? Like we saw in WeWork, like we saw in other companies. So, So where's the need to raise more capital? Now, small startups that have not been able to raise capital, I don't see how anybody's going to invest in them. They're not known. Why would anybody want to invest in those? Okay? So I don't think you're even solving the problem for the small players. Or even the medium players. What you're doing is is you're again you're enabling the large players, the unicorns, to stay private longer. And as I just showed you, I told you, even a few days ago, we have 15 new unicorns, and, and that's gonna continue.
0: Well, Anat, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this uh, incredibly timely issue in corporate finance.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Mike, how are you feeling?
3: My feeling is beyond necessity.
2: Is that effective? Now, Mike, I got a question I would like to experiment on you.
3: Well, if I ask you an answer, what is the
2: question? Don't you know it is always polite to wait until you are asked before you say something?
3: I accept your exalifying. And besides, I will admit in it that you are a better language than I am. You've got a right to be because you live next door to a school. And when I don't speak it such a fine, I am more than satisfied that you should make it a correction.
2: Make it a what?
3: No, not a what. I say when I don't speak it good, I am satisfied that you should make me a correction. A correctionate. A correction to
2: the Take your time. Don't work so hard. Now what do you want to say? By golly, do you understand
3: English? Yes, do you speak it? Well, what do you think I'm speaking Finnish? Well then say something. I say when I don't speak it good, I am satisfied to have you make it a correction.
2: Mike, it would be a pleasure to me if you were destined dumb. I never hear such
3: motions with a mouth in my life. Look to me like there's going to be a fight. I know you are a friend of mine, but whatever you speak, you speak for my own good. All the harm I wish you, I wish you for your own good. I know that, but what did you do with the $2,000 I give you?
2: I told you I investigated your money in the stockings exchange.
3: In the what exchange?
2: The stockings exchange, the stock I don't know yet what you've done with the $2,000 I give you. What have you done with it? By Charlie, have I always it that to be a kindergarten for you? I told you I investigated your money in the stockings exchange. The stock, the stock. Well, what is that? Stock, stock. That word stock means something. And whatever it means, you're in with it.
3: I am satisfied so, so long as I am in with it. But what am I investigated in?
2: Your money is investigated in the Metropolitan Railroad. Every car that is running in New York today, you own shares of your own part of them. You, you, you're interested in them.
3: Ah, uh, what are you speaking about? I got to pay my own fare.
2: Sure. But look, when we were standing on the corner this morning and you visited, didn't the car stop? Yes. Then well, I don't do that for everybody. Ah, uh, what are you talking about? What's that got to do with me? And then again, when we were inside of the car and the car didn't go to the street you wanted it to go. Didn't the conductor give you a transfer? A changer? A
3: changer? A transfer. Oh, yeah, sure, I got it.
2: Well, that told you the stockholder.
3: I thought that that told nothing of the kind. Everybody else got a transfer.
2: Well, isn't that all stockholders?
3: Well, what you told me to keep them and to save them up. Do sure,
2: a save up the transfers till you get a thousand of them. You bet your life I did it. cost me many initials to save them up. Ah, but when you get a thousand, then you're going to get promoted. Promoted to what? Do I get promoted? Don't you understand? Then you get a thousand transfers. Then you can stand on the corner yourself and get them out.
3: I don't like that. That's no good
2: for me. Nothing is any good for you. Look at the army you lose.
3: Well, I don't want that army. The only thing that I ever investigated my money in that didn't go up was the race.